Hello, and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about health, politics, and policy. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today on the pod, we're going to nerd out on the Democratic presidential primary with two political consultants, Kate Duke and Jason Syme. Kate Duke isn't your average political hack. She's actually an award-winning PhD who runs randomized controlled experiments to help clients win elections. Her firm is called One Minus Beta. Jason Syme is a political consultant whose experience includes organizing within the Iowa and Nevada presidential caucuses. He's also a health and wellness coach, speaker, and trainer through an organization he launched called Right to Shine. You can check it out at righttoshine.com. We'll get into that project during our conversation as well. Finally, Jason is also featured in a short documentary sponsored by REI called How to Run 100 Miles, which you can view on YouTube, and it's already gotten about 4 million views. It's an inspiring piece that weaves together Jason's personal history with his experience running an ultramarathon. Do yourself a favor and spend the 28 minutes it takes to watch this film. Finally, these two people aren't just partner guests on the podcast, but they're also partners in life. And somehow I managed to get through the whole interview without rudely teasing them about getting married, which I've been known to do in the past. All right, let's get to this conversation with Kate Duke and Jason Stein. Okay, so I'm here with Jason Stein and Kate Duke. Welcome. Hello. Hello. So we're going to talk a bit today about the Democratic primary process. And let's dive right in and examine how this process in 2020 is different than previous processes. First, um, there's been um, some talk in earned media about um, the elimination uh, of superdelegates in the process, at least in part. Tell me about that. Yeah, the, the major changes that occurred from 2016 to 2020 is how the superdelegates themselves can vote. Um, and this is regard into superdelegates, super for people that don't know, are largely elected officials, um, party leadership, and other Democratic folks that have moved up through the ranks who are then qualified as superdelegates. In 2016, these superdelegates could pledge a support behind a certain candidate uh, or say, I'm not supporting anyone. And then when it came to con uh, came to the convention, they could say, oh, I'm going to support X candidate. So for example, what the media really picked up in, in 2016 was that Hillary Clinton had a bunch of support of these superdelegates, and the whole thoughts were if Bernie ended up winning a bunch of these primaries, these caucuses with the pledge delegates, that then these superdelegates could then overturn the will of the say of the people. So because of that and some of the fighting that took place in, in regards to this process, the DNC made a change that now these superdelegates can only vote on the second ballot if it goes to contested convention, basically. So we go through the, pro the nominating process, which starts on February 3rd in Iowa. If no one gets a majority of the pledged delegates through this process, and there's, a, there's roughly 4,051 delegates up at stake, so 
uh, Democratic nominee would need roughly 2,026 delegates. If no one hits that number, then when it goes to convention, if no one gets the majority on the second vote, those superdelegates come into play. I mean, another thing that uh, you know, makes it different this time around is not just how the process is set up, but how the process has to be adapted for this gigantic field of candidates. It's over 20 now, I believe. So how are these debates going to work? How, I mean, are they going to try to get everybody on stage? What does that look like? Yeah, great question. Uh, so as of right now, there are 12 debates um, that are scheduled um, to occur um, between um, June of this year um, and the convention. Um, six are scheduled for 2019, six are scheduled for 2020. Uh, the first debate will be uh, in late June, June 26th and 27th in Miami. Second debate in late July, about a month later in Detroit. Um, you'll notice that even though I say the first debates, they occur over two nights and the same will happen with the second debate as well. It's a two night event. Um, if they'll accommodate up to 20 candidates, um, through a process that I can describe, but essentially then among up to those 20 candidates who may qualify, they'll be randomly split across the two nights. So there'll be no more than 10 candidates up on stage on either of the two nights. And how do you get on the stage and who gets prime time, who doesn't get prime time? Right. So in contrast to what the Republicans did in 2016, there isn't necessarily going to be like the kids debate prior, the kids table, um, followed by the main stage. So this time um, the DNC is going to do it by a random process. Um, and uh, so both all the candidates will be equally likely to occur on the first night or the second night. Um, and the qualifying process um, is that you have to have at least 1% support in three polls or provide evidence of having at least 65,000 unique donors with the added requirement that a minimum, you have to have a minimum of 200 donors in at least 20 different states. Um, then there's a, a runoff process of so more than 20 candidates reach um, or fulfill one of those two requirements. Then there's kind of a runoff to determine who will, would fall into the top 20. Um, with the first uh, criteria being if you meet both of the thresholds. So right now, there are 16 candidates who have qualified who meet one of those two criteria. Um, I think there are, there are an additional six who qualify by both criteria. So if that list actually gets longer than the 16 who have already qualified, then they might get sorted additionally so that there are only 20 on, on stage over the two nights. So given the more egalitarian nature of the selection process to get on stage, um, it seems like this could be a great opportunity for uh, a, a less well-known candidate to have a moment and break through. Um, you know, to date, I would say that perhaps Mayor Pete has been the um, candidate who um, has shot to the tier one of candidates that perhaps people didn't um, think uh, would. Uh, are there other candidates who are less well-known that you think have a shot at at least having a moment that haven't had one yet? I mean, I think that depending on who these 20 candidates, let's say with 20 are, I think there's a number of them that could. I think this uh, Andrew Yang <laughs> and this, uh, this entrepreneur, I think he's from California. Mm -hmm. um, the stuff and the buzz that he has online, online, and the what some of the things and policies he said, he definitely could have a moment where he says something that catches fire.
my, and my, that'd be one person I would, I would put on the list. Yeah, he's pretty interesting, too, because out of the six candidates who have qualified by both of the criteria, he's one of the six. And all of the other names are the big names um, in the race, and then the, followed by Andrew Yang. Um, so he's a pretty interesting candidate. Um, I mean, I, th- I think that also, I mean, Kate may have some, I think also some of these, depending on, again, who, who gets on stage, like if Tim Ryan, the congressman from Ohio, or some of these people that are like, they're going in thinking, how can I create a, a buzz or a media sensation for myself? And so they're going to go in with like, what's a one-liner that I can use against a front line, you know, a front runner, Biden, um, you know, Bernie, or, you know, what else can I say that's going to catch, that's going to catch buzz? All right, let's talk about the winnowing process, um, the official winnowing process known as the caucus and primary process. It all gets started in Iowa on February 3rd. Um, and Jason, you have extensive uh, experience in Iowa, you know, being, I believe, born and raised there, and you've, and you've worked to Iowa caucuses before. And the winner of the Iowa caucus has been pretty determinative as of late. Do you think that um, that's going to hold this time around? Or what indicators do we have about how important Iowa is going to be? Uh, good, great question. I, I mean, I think that looking back since like 2000, that whoever wins Iowa has, has eventually went on and the Democratic nominee went on to then win the nomination itself. Um, I think it with this crowded of a field, I, I don't think that we could use the same standards as saying you win Iowa, you're going to win the next um win the whole nomination, particularly just because the number of candidates, I think it's a little bit trickier. So you have four states coming up, you have Iowa, then you have New Hampshire, then you have Nevada, then you have South Carolina. You could really see that four different candidates could split win each one of those states where you're not creating the momentum that some people have got out of a traditional Iowa win, and then they use that momentum to then go into the other states. Um, However, it is the first state. All the media, the attention, everyone will be looking on it. I mean, doing a little bit of research and thinking about this beforehand, Kate and I were discussing, you know, California, and many people have been catching on to this. It will go on Super Tuesday, um, which I believe is March 3rd. But at the same time, their ballots, because they'd use mail ballots in California, will go out before then, meaning that voters in California can vote on February 3rd, the same day as the Iowa caucuses, even though they're not going to count those votes, you know, the process until Super Tuesday. Now, some people don't think that's going to make a difference because people are going to wait to see these early contests and who wins. But that is just something that hasn't been figured in before. And the two other caveats I would say is both in Iowa and in Nevada, another change via the DNC was how caucuses are traditionally uh, ran. They they had to make some changes to make them more accessible because traditionally caucuses are held in precinct or think in your neighborhood, whether it be a school, a church, a community center. They wanted to make them more accessible for, say, shift workers, uh, single mothers, people that were disabled. So in Iowa and both in Nevada, they're going to have, and they're going to be a little bit different, but virtual caucuses so people can participate beforehand, not just going in on caucus day itself. And I think those are a little bit of variables that are going to change that weren't there before in 2016. Okay, so there are 
four contests before Super Tuesday, which is on March 3rd. Right now on Super Tuesday, there are 13 contests. That's 12 states and Democrats abroad. And I'm hearing that our home state of Colorado might get thrown into Super Tuesday. So we'll see how that expands. But of those first four contests, two are primaries, two are caucuses. Um, Jason, could you talk about the difference in strategy between um, a caucus state and a primary state in terms of how a campaign approaches it? Yeah, I mean, I think the the difference for a, a primary, which people are familiar with because people participate in primaries all the time, it's how a general election is, it's a one cast, you vote for a particular person. In caucuses, what is different is that there is a formula, we're going to have to get into a little bit of math and maybe I should let uh, my amazing partner Kate talk about it, but really caucuses are set up by having a percentage of a threshold that you need to award a delegate to that presidential candidate. So in Iowa, for example, people would gather in a school and they would be gathered for their precinct um, and there would be a certain formula, a mathematical formula used to say, X supporter, I always use pizza, that way I'm not showing that uh, I have a back presidential candidate or whatever, but like pepperoni pizza, you would need X number of supporters to get say one delegate. So when it comes from organizing uh, campaign, you have to have a lot more folks on the ground and organizing those precinct by precinct, say you would then in a primary, because you want to know who your supporters are in those precinct. And you also want to know maybe that supporter is, or uh, maybe that you're a volunteer supporting someone else who's their second or third choice in these states, because it does matter. Say, for example, um, in a precinct, there is 20 people and you need say five people to get viable to get one delegate and you only have four people for pepperoni pizza, well, those four people could then go to another candidate. So organizing and knowing where those candidates go as a second choice becomes a big thing in both Iowa and Nevada. So it requires a lot more time and a lot more meetings and intense and organizers on the ground than say a traditional primary where you can just use money uh, spent on TV, uh, typical advertising. So do like organizers working in these races, working specifically for a campaign, have a they'll know who their supporters are because they'll have ID'd those people and they'll probably have been volunteers. But then how do they figure out who would be sec those second choice people to target? By asking the question, by organizing and asking. So for example, there's this, there's this story in 2008 and there's many stories like this in 2008 where I believe Dennis Kucinich was running for president of the United States and where he said, if in a precinct, his um, supporters, if they were not viable, he told them to make the second choice to Obama. Well, that makes a big difference, right? And so when you're thinking about the Iowa caucuses, you're also looking at, okay, 22, let's say it gets down to 15 yeah. candidates actually go in. Who are those lower tiers that are never going to hit viability threshold. You know some of the top tiers, they're going to get viability. They're going to they're going to meet what it takes to at least get one delegate, but who in that second tier will not? And then where do they go in their second choice? And that could change the outcome of the caucuses. Hmm. And that's where the organizing, you do not have to do that type of organizing in a primary state and knowing your people and volunteers and supporters. And Kate, you specialize in voter contact. And before we dive into voter contact this time around for the presidential primary, I think it's worth explaining what it is that you do. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, 
So um, I embed randomized controlled experiments uh, into campaign programs. Uh, so essentially what that means is um, the mail that you might get in, in your mailbox. Um, I help uh, political campaigns as well as advocacy organizations um, evaluate the effectiveness of that outreach. Um, so we do that by running a randomized controlled experiment. So this is the same thing that a pharmaceutical company would use to evaluate the effectiveness of a new drug that they're developing. Um, essentially, they would have a treatment group of people who would receive the treatment. And in their case, they'd have a placebo group of people who would receive a sugar pill. Um, and people wouldn't know whether they were part of that uh, treatment, whether they were receiving the treatment or the placebo. Uh, and then they'd evaluate whether or not the people who received the treatment um, had better outcomes than the people who received the placebo. Um, so I do something pretty similar, um, but we'll only we do it for politics. Um, and so um, I will randomly assign a group of people to actually receive the mail and then a group of people to a control group who won't. Um, and then we follow up and measure whatever outcome um, we're hoping to change by sending the mail um, and see whether or not uh, that mail actually had an impact on what we're hoping to change. So there's going to be a lot of uh, campaign content and communication in this race. And are you anticipating um, changes in this cycle uh, that we can expect to see in the way that candidates reach voters? Well, I do think that there's going to be quite a bit more emphasis on digital for the Democratic campaigns mm -hmm. in 2020 um, than there has been in the past. I think that um, there has been some uh, skepticism around whether or not digital is effective. Um, I think there's no doubt that at least the Trump campaign was able to deploy it um, to with uh, certainly, I mean, overall success. But I think even the digital component itself um, looks to have contributed to part of the success that his campaign saw. And so I think that there will be a number of campaigns that will attempt to emulate that in 2020 to some degree. Um, I think whether or not they're actually successful remains an open question. And what do you think about organize, how they're organizing via what you've seen? In other campaigns, we were talking about how they're doing polling via text and think that's going to change or I guess what, I, what I'm thinking about is like traditionally like in, in Iowa, you know, during the, some of these caucuses where you used to have like people would be like in a phone bank calling. Are you going to support yeah. Jake? Will you support me? Well, now there's more of the organizing where these organizers can be in a coffee shop and they're literally texting and yeah. organizing in a way that, you know, traditionally not has been done before in state. And I think that's. Yeah. Beto has awesome. a big operation like this mm -hmm. right now in Texas. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, potentially with texting, although I think that it's really going to depend on the demographics that you're trying to reach. Right. It's hard to imagine um, older Iowa voters uh, responding very favorably. Hey, to now. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> a deluge of text messages from candidates. And so I think that uh, they might not be super happy with the response rates they get yeah. using that strategy. But I think that they'll attempt to do it and they may well be successful particularly for younger voters. Are you saying Iowa is an older state? <laughs> Some of the primary voters in Iowa, <laughs> primary participants, uh, maybe. I've heard a lot of chatter about the diminishing ROI of TV, especially network TV. Uh, TV, you know, according to some, just isn't king anymore. This is, um, you know, building off your comments about digital. We've seen some in, within Democratic primaries, some insurgent candidates win uh, tough races without doing TV at all. W where does TV fall in the in the arsenal that's available to candidates today? 
I think it's still overwhelmingly the number one tactic that people use. Mm-hmm. Um, and that even though those they those might be particular case studies, um, a statistic that I've heard, which may be outdated at this point, was that 80% of uh, campaign budgets were going towards TV. So TV is still king. And even with um, the rise of cord cutters, um, the percentage of Americans who report that they've watched any TV um, actually on a TV um, in you know the prior period that they're surveying has certainly dropped um, but it's dropped from something like 98% to 90%. And it's still like a uh, way of reaching uh, a vast number of uh, potential voters and supporters um, at a pretty low cost per vote. So I still see campaigns in 2020 um, allocating a lot of their budgets to TV. All right. Let's get into um, let's get into some uh, prognostication, if you will. <laughs> First, how do you think this field is going to winnow over time? You know, there are over twenty candidates in right now. We've reviewed the calendar, um, at least the beginning part. We've got the first four contests from February third to February 29th, and then Super Tuesday on March third. Coming out of Super Tuesday, how many candidates are are still left? with active campaigns? Out of Super Tuesday, so after March 3rd, how many have active? I mean, my gut, when you just asked, said five. That could be really high. Yeah, so I mean, that would be roughly, so I'm thinking if there are 16 candidates so far who have qualified at least for the debates, um, maybe 12 stick around for for the Iowa caucuses. And then by the time Super Tuesday rolls around, I mean, I think maybe we're down to eight. Okay, and um, as it stands right now, if you were to predict your top five of who would have the most delegates going into the convention, who would those five be? Well, with the caveat that, of course, it is still very early and that there are um, still uh, so many voters who really haven't started paying attention, even though it might seem to us um, that the this campaign has already been going on for a while. Um, a lot of voters still aren't paying attention. Um, and so um, this could very well change. But I will say that the early evidence so far would certainly support that uh, Biden is kind of in a category of his own um, as probably the single candidate with the best chance of winning. Um, when you look at uh, polling, when you look at endorsements, uh, when you look at fundraising, um, he uh, when you look at the de- demographics of where his supporters come from, um, there are a number of, uh, of elements where he's just a strong candidate. And I think um, if I had to predict one candidate who would be the most likely to succeed at this point, uh, Biden would be my pick. I think after that, um, it would come down to Bernie Sanders, Buttigieg, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and Kamala Harris would round out my five. Okay. And how about you, Jason? Well, I mean, this is um, it's difficult in terms of trying to play, but I, I would agree with most of what Kate said. Um, just to be different, I will put someone else. I, I will go with, you know, definitely Biden, definitely Warren, um, Harris, Bernie, and then I'll throw in, and you said Mayor Pete as the fifth or Buttigieg. Um, I'm going to go for Booker at five. 
I know folks on his team, so hopefully I can do amazing things. <laughs> All right, so you've both uh, said that Biden has um, a, a great shot to win here. Biden also has um, a track record in virtually every campaign he's run of as some sort of gaffe that ends up costing him, inclu including the last time he ran for president. Um, is that just baked in now to his expectations, or do you think that he's still at significant risk of repeating the behavior of the past and really, you know, impeding his ability to succeed? I mean, to some degree, I think that gaffes, um, it depends on the individual, right? And in terms of the severity of the problem. And so I think that like, when you think about what Donald Trump says traditionally, most people working on a campaign would say most of what he says is a gaffe. And yet he still has um, uh, support among the Republican base. Um, I think that with Biden, people um, know that sometimes he says things um, that later um, he has to clarify. And so to some degree, it's baked in. Um, and I think it just may be less damaging now than it once was. And I also think that if he didn't have eight years as vice president underneath Obama, the gap thing would be different. But he had eight years of positive, Im positive image, pa positive comments, po everything that really has particularly Democratic primary voters feeling very fondly of him because of those eight years that I think that the gaffe is going to be a little bit less than it was, say, when he ran last time in 2008 or before then, 1988. You know, we had um, Rich Pelletier on, on the podcast earlier, who you both know, who was Bernie's national field director last time around. And I asked him, you know, what he'd do differently this time. And what I got from his answers uh, was the sense that uh, Bernie's campaign has a significant advantage in having just done this. No other candidate has just done this. Like the staff is, uh, you know, fresh and experienced. The relationships they built in organizing in these states are still fresh. How much do you think that counts for? I think, me personally, I think that counts for, I don't know how to put a percentage on it, but it, it does, you know, I would say it counts a lot, um, particularly in regards to when it's such a crowded field, that every little advantage that you have in terms of turning a supporter or being able to call up someone to help you organize an event, all the online donations, that's why you know he had such a good fundraising quarter, um, along with them understanding the game as it is, how you get to win the Democratic nominee when it goes into these extra states. Not many, not many of the campaigns are prepared for it to go past that long, and that's where they have the real advantage, which I think, you know, Rich was definitely talking about it. It certainly helps to the extent, too, that he uh, has a huge email list that he can go to yeah. from the very beginning. And to think about um, the type of uh, supporters that he already, the, the magnitude of support that he would already have um, and be able to call from for fundraising appeals, for volunteer asks, um, is uh, many orders of magnitude different than, say, Pete Buttigieg. Right. I mean, exactly. And I think the only, there's not even anyone else. When you just look at the where the campaign spent their money as a first quarter, you know, Warren has the largest uh, staff. Um, and then it was sort of followed by, I believe, Bernie and then um, G 
Gil, Gildebrand actually had um, the sec. So, I mean, they're preparing for the long haul. And I think that 50 states, like planning a strategy around 50 is a huge financial. And them just having the volunteers in 50 states is, an, is something that they're going to, it's going to, if they win, it's going to be because of that. I feel like this speaks to the ongoing debate within the Democratic Party about uh, finding a candidate who's, quote, more electable, who could potentially sway that sliver in the middle uh, to a winning margin versus a candidate who is best for turnout. Um, you know, for example, uh, driving the African-American vote in Wayne County in Michigan um, when, when we need it. Um, where do you guys fall on that debate? Uh, should we have a candidate uh, from the Democratic Party who um, is more widely appealing or a candidate who could do the best in driving turnout with base demographics? I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I mean, I think one of the things that makes Biden so strong is that um, he has a lot of support from black voters um, and um, has picked up some endorsements um, from black community leaders that say Kamala Harris has not picked up. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that makes um, Biden such a formidable contender in this process um, is that he has um, both kind of the general profile, um, people will see him as being very electable um, based on who America has elected in, uh, in the past as president, um, but also that he has um, support from demographics that are important to turn out um, for Democrats to win in the general. I mean, I think in stepping back, um, acknowledging what Kate said, if we, uh, the Americans, elected Donald Trump in office, which no one predicted him getting out of the primary, and certainly there was many people that never in a million years would predict him in president of the United States, I sometimes have trouble stomaching some of our Democratic pundits or people, activists, arguing about this question about what you said, the electability, when we have the current person in the, the Oval Office. Um, that, that doesn't mean there isn't uh, real challenges in terms of running against him uh, in the general, but I think that sometimes um, we're forgetting how these things shake out and you know how we try to forecast who's who's better, um, knowing that many different things are going to shape the outcome of the, of the president of the United States uh, in 2020, the race. So, Do you think that um, of the current field, um, whoever's nominated has a legitimate shot to beat Donald Trump in the, in the general? A legitimate shot? Yes, has a legitimate Absolutely. shot, yes. I think if we think about how Donald Trump frames up candidates um, or how he likes to get on Twitter and frame them up very quickly. In my mind, I'm always thinking about who is the hardest for him to come up with the one-liner, the tag, or to frame up to activists or stir people around. And so I think looking at it, that one sometimes is, is uh, helpful. Um, I don't know if that puts anyone at the top of the list, but I, I do think it, some of them are more challenging for him to frame. I mean, I think that's why he's coming out and calling Joe sleep, you know, sleepy. Um, I, I, I don't seem he hasn't talked, which is very interesting because I don't know if there's a second thinking or some sort of uh, conspiracy or other. But he hasn't talked a lot about Kamala Harris. Right. He hasn't been on Twitter, at least to my knowledge, or about Buttigieg, Mayor Pete. He hasn't said a lot of things, even though Mayor Pete's been going against his vice president. What does that say? You know, I think those things are interesting. He, he's been sticking up for uh 
Bernie, watch out, Bernie, watch what they're doing. What does that also say? Are those the people that he's actually worried most about? I don't know. So these are really long contests. Uh, and each, um, each state is its own beast in terms of uh, the work and time that goes into it on the ground. Jason, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what it's like physically, emotionally, mentally, um, working on these campaigns on the ground. And then perhaps we could talk a bit more about um, what you do now on top of political consulting. Uh, on top of political consulting, you um, are also a health consultant. So let's start with, you know, what, a, what the experience is like on the ground in these campaigns. Well, I mean, I think that a lot of people would use the analogy of any, particularly a presidential campaign, for some of these, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And as someone that's ran uh, ultra marathons, and those are races longer than any uh, marathon, I would say a presidential camp, I would say a regular campaign's a marathon in terms of an analogy. I would say working a presidential is like running an ultra marathon and particularly uh, the 50 mile or 100 mile, just because the sheer amount of time and the duress and the pressure of you know the highest office in the in the world that translates down to whoever you're working um, you know the county you're working for all the way to the staff so you know the hours the structure um, the excitement um, all equals very grueling um, work environment that, that's tough but at the same time exciting. Yeah, I mean, I recall my first presidential was 2004 um, here in Colorado. And um, I slept on a couch. I ate garbage. I uh, got very little sleep. I rarely saw the sun. Um, I, I think I, if I would have kept doing that for you know a year, I probably would have taken five years off my life. Um, and so I know you um, advise both individuals, companies, and even campaigns on how to achieve better balance, be healthier. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, I created my my company, my business called Right to Shine, um, and partly um, I spent so many years fighting for the rights of others, whether it's women's rights, voters' rights, um, the right to equal health care, um, and then the shine coming through my work in yoga that I really wanted to put a microscope on how people take care of themselves, uh, particularly when working on campaigns or issue campaigns across uh, the United States or, or in the workplace, nonprofits in general. Um, and so part of it, the first step is a culture change. Some of these presidential campaigns or campaigns in general think that the way to success is work everyone to death. And literally, and people don't want to talk about this, there's stories of people literally dying on campaigns. We're not talking old people. People in their late 20s, early 30s have worked on either Obama's campaign or other campaigns where they actually had a heart attack or some of them actually died, right? But no one wants to talk about that as a health, as an issue. They for So first, you have to somewhat change the mentality that you can still do the work to get your candidate elected, but you don't have to put in the hours, the stress, or just the environment that it is. Um, so it's, it's a culture change and also it's the leadership of some of these candidates. Why I, um, and some people are saying like Elizabeth Warren is very appealing to me because just how she, clear she's been on policy, but also she's been talking about how, you know, treats her staff um, and all that is how you lead to sort of change the culture um, in these 
you know, work in environments that are very um, stressful. Some of it is just changing culturally. Uh, I feel like this isn't exclusive to campaigns, but really the wider culture uh, when it comes to work um, is challenging. You know, there's been some recent pieces, uh, for example, one in the New York Times about how um, these kind of extreme work cultures, um, especially disadvantaged women, um, because of the way it, it limits um, or entirely eliminates time that you can spend with your family. Not that, you know, not that women should be spending more time with their family than men, but oftentimes, you know, women are um, one way or another uh, responsible for children and it's not good for them. It's not good for anybody. What have you found in your practice about um, the best ways to cope with what I would argue to be um, a more extreme work culture than we used to have? I think that that, uh, as you know, a three-hour segment, <laughs> what we could say, say in regards to what is um, the best. I mean, I think there's a, there's a couple things with that. One is Amer Amer this American culture, which um, I I'm in, you're in, um, is this hustle and thrive or always go, go, go. Um, so a word that likes to get used when we're talking about how you take care of yourself, sometimes people use the word balance. Um, but I think the balance misses the overall what needs to take place, and that is integration in terms of how you practice. Call it self-care for yourself. So how you do that during the day and how you do that when you're a single mom or how you do that when you're home, people really need to think about how they set up a plan that is successful for them. And that requires them to integrate both their work, family, and all the life into one thing. And that requires having very vulnerable conversations with those that are in your, say, sphere, your family, your friends. Um, it's about setting clear boundaries, willingness to say no, to not overextend yourself when you need to take care of yourself or you need to spend, some spend a few minutes with your um, kids. Or as I read more research, um, particularly, and I think that this is this is this gets into a whole big conversation. Um, people need to be more vulnerable with the ones that are very close about having these conversations and how they take care of themselves. And that could be, you know what, kids? I know you guys are really hungry or you need to be fed right now, but we as a family, we're going to take five minutes. We're just going to sit and meditate. And I think when people start having that conversation, it's amazing that you're a parent. You can still lead, and you see that parents around the globe do this. And I think that those shifts is sort of part how a family as a whole, particularly when you're a mother or a single mother like mine of, of six, my mom always said she raised six kids on her own, but she always found at least 10 minutes of reading a day, and that was her escape. And, you know, and I think that more people need to know that that's their game plan rather than burnout. I'm going to take your five-minute meditation idea and try to apply it with my kids. Well, and Kate's uh, family has a great e example of this. Uh, Kate's, fa uh, Kate's family loves to play games. My family doesn't come from sort of the same game culture because my family was chaos survival. I mean, the game was who's going to get that last piece of food? I mean, right? Like, who, that was the game. Um, but Kate's uh, family, it's very beautiful to see um, Kate's um, sister has a daughter named Charlotte. And the other day, there were these little yoga, I think yoga cards in terms of like instructive guides what to do. And it, one was literally, you sit in a circle 
you hold hands and everyone goes around and describes one word of how they're feeling. How many families do you think in America ever done anything like that? Yeah. And you know, at first you're like, oh, yeah. what kind of feeling? And how is this going to make me feel uncomfortable? But once everyone did it, it would like change the energy and the dynamics in the family. And that is just something very simple yeah. that you can do that doesn't require you being around a screen yeah. or watching something that actually talks about how you're feeling. To fill in a couple of gaps, the game is called Community Circle. And um, the first round, you go around and you talk about um, one word that describes um, how you're feeling. And then the second time we did it, we all went around and we talked about um, a word that we wanted to use to describe how we wanted someone else in our family to feel. Um, and so um, it happened to be my mom's birthday, for example. And so I said that I wanted my mom to feel youthful. Um, and it was uh, a nice activity for our family to do. Um, and, you know, as Jason mentioned, it did kind of change the whole dynamic. It was really a nice activity. And then we went on and we had cake and ice cream, but it was a, it was a great like family activity. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad you guys participated in this activity. Um, I thought it was great. Thanks again for your time. Thank, Thank you, you very much. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Give us feedback anytime at woodenteethshow.com. And don't forget to subscribe and give us five stars wherever you listen to this podcast. See you next week.